go ahead and get started. Um, we have a lot to cover. 45 minutes. Who's after me? Uh, Dr. Tischler. Uh, we can go over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. All right. Let's, um, yeah. let's pray. You guys are far away. Feels like you're at church. We're back row Baptist. Back All right, let's pray. Lord, we're, um, we need your help to take good care of patients. Hepatitis C. So I pray that you would you teach us the things that we need to know to take really good care of these folks that you send our way. You'd help us maintain our attention. You'd help us be focused. And then, Lord, that you'd send these patients our way so that we could be your hand of, of healing to them. Amen. All right. We're going to talk about hepatitis C. Who has managed any hepatitis C in your clinic? Who's done it? Sam. Um, Sam? Never mind. That was a champion. Um, so giving them medicine insurance. So he was three or four weeks. He also had like some. Um, oh, yeah. Um, we were having him come in. time to get uh, his medicine, and Caleb did a couple of the echo yeah. consults with the patient, too. Yeah, good. Excellent. Yeah, so the biggest part of this you're going to see is not medicine. It's pharmacy and medical finance, because these meds are very hard to come by. They're getting better, and we'll go through kind of that process. So my goals for the time that we have, I really I would like you to understand the role of family medicine in diagnosing and managing patients with MC. And the reason for that is because a lot of patients are not getting care. Right? So I, the biggest goal is, is that more patients would get care that need care. So hepatitis C is curable, which you'll see quickly. Uh, and these patients are really to care for. These are folks who often have come out of a very difficult background, some of them, and they have this thing that's sort of hanging over their head. There's a lot of stigma attached to it um, for a lot of folks. Um, and you have the ability to remove that in a way that you know, really frees them. So I've seen a lot of folks having gotten the same virologic response. I mean, it really changes their life. It gives them a different, different sort of look for the future. And so this is a really important area I think that we can learn and do better. That's my goal. So start off with just a quiz question. This is what we're working on trying to get live. You're just gonna have to raise your hand. It wouldn't load well for me on poll everywhere. Which of the following statements is true about HCV testing? Patients with positive anti-HCV and negative HCV RNA test results should be informed that they have a current HCV infection. B, patients with positive anti-HCV and positive HCV RNA test results should be informed that they have current HCV infection. C, patients with negative anti-HCV test results should be informed of the test's low sensitivity 
and the likely chance of still being infected if they have current risk factors for HCV. D, universal hepatitis C screening at least once in a lifetime for all adults age 18 and older is not recommended. Who votes for A? A's? All right, who votes for B? Everybody's B? Okay. Anybody C? Be brave. C, come on in. Is hep C. Yeah, raise your hands. C, there we go. We got one C. C for hep C. Any Ds? No, Micah says no. Yeah, so the answer is the answer is B. Why is A not correct? Yeah, right. So so RNA is kind of the gold standard, right? If it's present, if RNA, HCV RNA is present, they have infection regardless of their antibody status, right? Which is why C is also not correct, right? Hmm. What is that situation? A negative antibody and a positive negative anti-HCV. Sorry, B. Negative anti-HCV and positive RNA test. Yeah, I'll be. Um. So what's B? Why is B not the case? A. Positive anti. Sorry, A. Yes, you're right. It would it be a, a past infection or exposure, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into all of these details. All right. All the following statements are true about individuals screened for HCV infection, except. A, these patients should also be screened for alcohol and drug use. B, you should offer hep A and hep B vaccination if the patient's not current. C, you should offer these patients risk assessment and testing for HIV and STDs. And then D, repeat testing is recommended every five years if individuals have HCV risk factors and test negative. This is A is, so this is true except, right? Whoa. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I always sound kind of right. <laughs> Read the question. <laughs> okay, so which one? Who goes with A? Accept. Okay, so you're going to screen everybody, right, for alcohol or drug use for sure. This is B. Accept. You don't want them to. You, you would like them to get Hep A and Hep B. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Vaccinated. Concurrent infection. Yeah. So you definitely want to offer them. Hep A and Hep B vaccination. Uh, what about offering them HIV and STI testing? That sounds pretty good. Sounds easy, right? And what about D? Testing every five years. So when do you when do you repeat test them? They're negative and they're still in a risk. You'll see data every three to four months, up to every year, depending on what the risk factors are. So it's not every five years. All right. Once again, people were avoiding him just because he had hepatitis C. <laughs> he brought the turkey. All right. I was looking when I was preparing this, I was looking, I, I did the search in the Bible for liver. This is the verse that comes up about liver. And then I fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> as you often do when you're doing this. And so Ezekiel 21, it says, for the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads. 
Seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. <laughs> right? So then I found that, like, they really did this. So this is a cross-section of the liver. And they would, they would look at this to sort of divine things, right? So there were all these different globes that you'd look at, and depending on the, the condition of the liver, they would make decisions based on that. Um, so the liver is important. It's even in the Bible. Okay, so why do we care? Let's talk through some of the. Oh, no. Very nice. Here's why we care. So, this is why we need to learn how to do this. And I really, I am very biased toward us learning how to do this. I, this is in the hands of primary care physicians across the planet. It's not done very much here at the clinic, um, but it really should be. We have a, a population of folks with hep C that are coming in all the time and we're not treating them. We're going to other places. Um, I'll just tell you in Oklahoma, a lot of this is being done out in the rural parts of Oklahoma by nurse practitioners, by PAs and others, you know, through, through some support through echo, which you're going to hear about, but this is not difficult. Um, for most patients, this is not a difficult process. But you do have to know. And so I really want us to learn how to do this because here's why it's important. So it's about 1 million folks with HIV in the country. About 21% of those are unaware of their infection. That's the problem. Hepatitis um, B, similar numbers, about a million is sort of thrown around. A much larger percentage of folks are infected that don't know they have a chronic hepatitis B infection. And look at the hepatitis C numbers. So a lot higher numbers of folks running around with chronic hepatitis C and about 75% of those are unaware that they have the infection. Now, these are older numbers, but or older data, but these have really held up quite, quite a lot over the last 10 years or so. So very, very prevalent problem. Here's the CDC data. Somebody interpret this graph for me. So this is interesting. This is really current data. So starting in 2018, going to 2023, someone interpret interpret what you see there. Yeah, maybe you can do it since you're chewing. <laughs> X-axis is years. Okay. And the Y-axis is reported cases of hepatitis, of acute hepatitis C virus infection per 1,000. And then 100. So we have, as time increases, the number of reported acute cases goes up for all age groups, except 20 to 29 year olds, where it started to decline after 2018. And the peak rise for all of everybody else is kind of like yeah. 2014, 2016. So what happened around here? Yeah, so there's a big pandemic here. So be careful, the reported cases. <laughs> Um, we lost a lot of health care here, so there might be some of that, right? But what else? So these are the 20 to 39-year-old. We're not out and about getting hep C. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Sure. There's a little flattening of the 30 to 39-year-olds, 20 to 29. Maybe. I mean, these are young people. Yeah, I think probably so. With social media, there's been some real efforts to try to impact this. So maybe, maybe a combination of all of the above. Look at these other numbers, like those of us who don't use computers. <laughs> uh, you know, we continue to see increases, right? So 
Just be aware, that's some interesting data from CDC. That's now still, this is again, old day, the 2013, but the numbers have gotten a little bit closer, but we still see deaths from hepatitis C now higher than deaths from HIV. So I can remember back in the dark ages when HIV, I mean, you know, it was a death sentence every time. They just came in with the AIDS defining illness, you know, PCP and all the other stuff. That's going by the wayside, but now hepatitis C. What do people die from from hepatitis C? Cirrhosis. Cirrhosis of the liver is number one and cellular carcinoma. So HCC and those two and, and chronic. The other thing is this number is probably a little bit low because a lot of people die with cirrhosis and maybe have never even been tested with hep C because maybe they're alcoholics or there's something else going on and the death certificate doesn't list hep C. So that number is probably higher than that. So very important to learn how to take care of this. All right, here's my three objectives. I want you to know the demographic group. This is becoming less and less important because you're gonna see pretty soon that the big groups of folks who recommend treatment are recommending really universal screening of hepatitis C. That's changed in the last five to seven years. Um, but I still want you to have in the back of your mind the demographic groups that are important to test. We're gonna talk about diagnosing it. We're gonna talk about treating it. Okay, that's the three things we're gonna do. Who's, who are the people? How do we diagnose this, this illness? How do we treat it as a primary care physician? But first, I want you to pause and I want you to be amazed by what has happened in this area. It's incredible stuff. So in 400 BC, I told you I fell down a rabbit hole. Wow. So in 400 BC, epidemic jaundice was described. Right? Who knows what that was? Fast forward, 1942, 1945, there was lots of hepatitis in World War II. It was called serum or acute hepatitis at the time. Who knows if it was A, B, C, D, <coughs> X, Y, Z, but it was seen. In 1960, hepatitis B was accidentally discovered by testing the serum of an aborigine. There was a Nobel Prize given for that. In 1973, hepatitis A was discovered in fecal samples of prisoners. And in 1975, an undiscovered, previously undiscovered hepatitis virus was discovered, and they called it non-A, non-B. <laughs> you guys don't remember that. Non-A, non-B. So then in 19, it took them that long to call it C. Wow. <laughs> 1989, hepatitis C virus is discovered. 1991. Interferon is developed. We start treating hepatitis B mostly and, start, and starting with C. 1992, testing of the blood supply begins. Not very long ago. 1998, we start treating non-A, non-B or C, hepatitis with interferon and ribavirin. In 2001, pegylated interferon was developed. These were really, really harsh, very, very difficult treatments, right? These, these folks really struggled with all kinds of terrible side effects to get rid of this virus. And the, and the response rates were not great. Right? And then in 2010, a rapid antibody test was developed. And three years later, the first direct acting antivirals were approved. So over the period of 25 years, from 1989 to 2013, 
we came up with a, with a medication, a set of medications that causes a cure in over 90%, sustained virologic response. That is incredible, right? If you compare that to all of these big boys, some of them we've been okay on, but look at how much we struggle. Very few of these do we have anything north of, you know, 50% or something response rate, right? But for this virus, we can treat this. It's a big deal. So if you think about the burden of this illness and then the capability of getting this cured, I mean, like, why would you not just care for these folks, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, look how hard it is to manage some of these things over here compared to what we get with health. Okay, so you convinced? Yes. All right. So we want to describe the demographic group with the highest incidence of chronic hepatitis C. These are what you will see listed as the big things you think about, right? So anyone born to an HCV positive mother. Uh, This is not as common now, tattoos in non-sterile settings. Most people are getting their tattoos at food places. Um, If they're in prison, maybe not. But non-sterile tattoos are not very common. It used to be like on every history, and it's still there. And every hepatitis history is going to be how many tattoos that they have. And so in terms of the numbers, chronic hemodialysis patients are certainly a risk. Needle sticks in healthcare settings. So when you get stuck, often we're worried or we're thinking about hepatitis C, right? So that's still a risk. Persons who were ever incarcerated, as McKinsey said, anyone who's ever been in the prison system has a much higher rate uh, of hepatitis C. Current or former injection drug users, Unprotected sex with an HCV-infected person, although really the studies show this is exceedingly rare. So it's very difficult to pass HCV sexually unless there's blood involved. Persons with HIV infection have a pretty high burden of HCV. They sort of run together. Sharing personal items, you'll hear this all the time, Um, sharing a razor, nail clippers, toothbrushes, that kind of stuff. Again, pretty rare often listed. And then receipt of donated blood, again, pretty, pretty unusual. But folks who had a transfusion from long, long time ago before the blood bank was being tested, and then invasive healthcare procedures. So probably 20 years ago now, there was a big outbreak of hepatitis C from a dental office here in town. Mm. It's like pretty bad, right? That's, that's very rare, exceedingly rare now. Okay, so we, we think about it. Um, all of those folks we think about, but when we start actually looking at the data, most of them are people who were born in these years. So baby boomers actually now account for about 75% or more of the, of the hepatitis C in the U.S. The, these are the patients that are coming in with hepatitis C. So it definitely is... Uh, it definitely is those categories, but it's also your patients that are coming in, which is why CDC is recommending that pretty much everyone over age 18 now fits into their category. They would like you to focus on these special groups, pregnancy, anybody who's injected illegal drugs, clotting factor concentrates, chronic hemodialysis, persistently abnormal hepatitis or uh, transaminitis. So we often will work these people up, right? So we often do that when we see it. Um, recipients of transfusions again before 1992, occupational children, HIV positive. And then USPSTF just says, 
pretty much everybody. And they don't even direct you with this, right? So it's just like everybody gets a screen. So who are they? Well, they're these people. This is the stigma and the bias that we sort of carry into this. And, it, and it's probably true maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, more than it is, because now it's more of these people, <laughs> right? So it's all of these people. So you should be doing this regularly in your clinic. A hep C is too easy to test for, to screen for, and it's supported by everybody. And if they don't have it, it's not going to be in the recommendations tab of Cerner, but like every one of these people, little people, and all of these people should be screened. Okay. Got it? Let's look. What does this, what does this graph look like to you? There's this bimodal distribution. <laughs> yeah, please don't get that. <laughs> Brain, gutter. Um, uh, Stacy said a liver. Oh, a liver. So, um, <laughs> so this is bimodal distribution. So there's this kind of 20 to 40. What else do you see here? Blue is male. male. Right, so about three times more males and females have hepatitis C. Realize that's the demographic we're looking for. This group, and then again, these boomers, these folks that are in their 50s to 70s. We don't know what they were doing, what risk they were doing back in the 60s. But they're the ones that, so you kind of see this is just kind of flattening to everyone gets screened. That's where we go. Okay, you know the demographic group now. Now we're going to talk about diagnosing. How do we do this? Here's the test that I generally do first. This is the test under Zerner. All of these are available. This is the one that gets you what you want. Okay. So it's hepatitis C analyzer reflex to genotype. So what does that do at LabCorp? Well, they run a hepatitis C antibody. If it's negative, they stop. The patient is charged for the antibody and that's all they get. If it's positive, you get a viral load, HCV RNA, and you get a genotype. Talk about genotype in a minute because it makes it makes this feel more complicated than it is. It's not complicated, okay? But that's the test that I think is the best test to do that is sort of autopilot. Kind of order it and, and cascades to what you want, right? Occasionally, when they come in, so sometimes patients will come in with like a positive antibody. Is the antibody, and then you can order RNA and genotypes separately. So you'll see uh, sometimes do that. And so that gets you the all three pieces of it, right? They come in with this positive. This, and, and here's what it's going to look like. So somebody interpret what this is. So, basically. So they've had it before and they have it currently. Yeah, so this is a positive HCV. This is what you should see if you do this. Positive. Okay. Sure. Or this one. An acute infection. Okay. Or they're on steroids or something that's suppressing their antibody response. And that viral load will often be much higher, right? And the first two both could also be acute infection. Like it doesn't differentiate if it's acute and history or acute. Right. What does acute hepatitis C look like? By the way, you see somebody when they've just been like in the last few weeks 
infected with HCV. Does it have IgM antibodies? Yes, but how do they how do they present? Yeah, clinically. Flu like symptoms, maybe, but probably. I mean, it's really it's actually pretty mild. So they may have a little tiny bit of jaundice. They may get a little bit of transaminitis, and it kind of resolves on its own pretty quickly. It's not the raging horrible Hep A where people are just you know, it's not it doesn't present that way. So it's a little bit more indolent, a little bit slower, smoldering kind of a picture, and that's true across the whole lifespan, right? So they may not come in. That's why it's hard to diagnose these people because they don't, they may feel sick and maybe don't notice that they're yellow or they're, you know, for a couple of days and maybe they don't even have jaundice. And so they don't know that they have HCV. Okay, what's this one? Vaccinated. The antibody's positive. And is this one chronic? Yeah, what does chronic mean? What do you mean by that? They've had it for... They're, they're making antibodies against it. So they've had exposure to it in the past and their body recognizes it, but they're not acutely. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. So these are people who have cleared the virus. These people are not infected. Remember, our, the, the HCV RNA is what determines whether you have active replicating virus in your body. These are people who have cleared this virus and anywhere from five to 15, 20 folks, and some studies will actually clear this virus and not have chronic viremia. So that's this. So they will have antibody often, but their RNA is, is zero, which is why you want that cascade. You can't make the decision based on just antibody, right? And then negative, negative, clearly they're having a good day, right? Would that third option from the top also be um, vaccinated? If there was an HCV vaccine. Oh, you're right. Never mind. I'm thinking hit B. Yeah. If there was a vaccine and if, if there is ever, then that would be what that would look like. Okay. So is that clear? Any questions about diagnosis? I mean, this is really simple. Yes. Um, I tried to order one of the analyzers. I can't remember which one, but it had to be on ice is what the MA said. So is she true? But the lab wasn't able to complete it here. And they said the patient had to go to RML to do that one. So just be careful you order the lab. Yeah. So that I'm glad you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. I do order this to be drawn outside mm -hmm. for that reason. Mm -hmm. so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. At LabCorp. Good. Other questions about diagnosis? Very, very straightforward, very simple. Not near as hard as that hepatitis B pant, like that table <laughs> to all memorize every time we take the test. Like, I don't know what core and envelope and all of that is. It's, it's none of that. It's just like, <laughs> right? See how simple? Yes. Okay. Oh, another thing that's happening sometimes, and patients will come in with these, which is kind of interesting. So about 75 bucks, you can buy this over the counter you can have a mail-in antibody test comes back in two weeks. These are FDA approved. Five of them on the market now. So I've had a couple of patients come in with a home test that was positive. So this will be more common. So you'll just just so you're aware, being done direct to consumer. Okay. All right. So the demographic groups we kind of talked about. How you diagnose it. Now we're gonna talk about treating it. So the first thing you do, you do that genotype. Now I'm gonna tell you why you do the genotype 
Because in a minute, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't really matter <laughs> until it does matter. Right? So it, oh. it, it matters about it matters about one to two percent of the time, something like that. So if you don't do the genotype, you end up needing to have known it later. We'll kind of talk through that. That's why we do it. So normally you can you get it because the current guidelines do not take genotype into into account for non for uncomplicated Hep C. Right. But you do need it for the folks that come back complicated. So, and this is the website. This is the American Academy of Liver guidelines. They update this very frequently. It's it's very very well done, and it is the source. Um, so let's talk about genotype. I know not complicated. This looks really complicated. But <laughs> you look at genotype, I just want you to know where, where these are. So the U.S. is over here. When you do a genotype on a hep C, you're going to get one, almost always, genotype one, right? By far the most common across the world, most common here in the United States. You'll occasionally get some twos and threes, and that's pretty much it, okay, for regular American people. Not talking about immigrants that are coming from another place, regular people that you're testing, United States and Canada, you're going to get genotype one almost always. All right. And then interestingly, there's these other places. So that's true across most of, you know, the Americas, et cetera. But some of you guys are going to be doing missions and other things in other parts of the world. Africa in particular has a lot of genotype four. Okay. Again, interesting, usually not important, but good to know. Three is the problem child. So South Asia, three is where we develop some resistance and those are the things that we need to be careful about. That's why we do genotype, but you're not often gonna see it. See, it's just tiny little bit here in the US, but if you're working in South Asia, some of these other places, you're gonna have to learn a little bit different style. Okay, but here is what it's gonna look like for you in the United States. Okay. So first step is to make sure they have hepatitis, see what the genotype is for interest. And second, the biggest fork in the road is the assessment of fibrosis, all right? How do you do that? In the old days, my day, everybody got a biopsy. That was not great, right? That was difficult to do. And some of these folks will still end up at biopsy if they're very complicated. I mean, almost never and not really required. The so second step is to, the, is to assess fibrosis. So we calculate these two fancy numbers. These are online. The next slide has got them and I'll show you what they are. Do a fancy test called Fibrospec2. This is a lab test. Do an ultrasound. And then again, a little bit older, uh, and, but you'll still see it done is elastography where there's like a fancy ultrasound probe that shows how stiff the liver is. And so you'll see those results occasionally, but this is not something that we do. Okay, so two little calculators, a lab test and an ultrasound. The biopsy often no longer necessary. Remember on biopsy, so this is what it looks like. Remember histology? in these little bridging fibrosis, and then we turn into cirrhosis. 
This is the FibroSpec 2 by a company called Prometheus. You order that test. That's the current test. Now, LabCorp occasionally changes this test. It's been a couple of years though that this has been on there. So this is what you order. Okay. When you order that, I will go over what it looks like when all this comes back. So this is the FIB4 calculator, age, AST, platelet count, ALT. Okay, it's gonna give us spit out a number. Here's the APRI, AST, their level, the upper limit of normal, their platelet count, it's gonna spit out a number. Now you have the numbers. And this is what you get back from Prometheus. So you'll get this little lab back. It will give you a score. This is based on three biomarkers, basically, that they're testing for that, that correlate with hepatocellular damage. And they're going to give you a score, and they're going to tell you what their fibrosis stage is. Very straightforward. That's it, you guys. And I will tell you that most of the time, most of the time, this clinic, patients come in with hepatitis C antibody positive. If they're otherwise healthy and they're not, you know, chronic alcoholics, terrible diabetes, you know, whatever. I mean, if they're not really, really sick people, you're going to do all of this test and they're going to come back zero fibrosis, probably 90 plus percent of the time. So you go through all of this stuff and it's going to come back, no fibrosis or no cirrhosis. And you're, and you know, the scan's going to come back nothing on the liver, gallbladder looks good. And that's, that's 90% of the time. That's what you're going to get back. So those are the folks that you could really, really benefit here. Right? So that's what you do. That's the steps. Look at this. Look how simple this is. Who is eligible for simplified treatment? Chronic hepatitis C, any genotype, not have cirrhosis and have not been treated. That's like everybody, right? That's everybody who comes in almost. Who's not? So these are not people that I would manage solo. These are people that I would refer out to a hepatologist to an, or to an ID. These are people who've been treated before that have cirrhosis, although there's, you can do some of this solo if you're careful with cirrhosis, if they've got hepatitis B, obviously if they're pregnant, or if you think they have carcinoma or it's a transplant. I mean, obviously these are not things that you're gonna be managing. <laughs> okay, so these are not eligible for simplified treatment. And here's what you wanna do. And this is all straightforward. You could probably sit down and think this through and write all of this down and come up, come up with it on your own, but you don't have to. Back to the FIB4. Cirrhosis, this is what it looks like. And it's going to come back at zero, no cirrhosis, 90% of the time. Medicine reconciliation, you're going to know what their medicines are. You do that anyway. Here's a big one. You do this for Paxlovid, right? When you order COVID tests, I mean, COVID medicine, you do this, you know how to do it. It's going to spit out. You know, the up-to-date thing or the, or the uh, University of Liverpool drug interaction check is going to spit out, you know, think about this, think about statin, think about diabetes, whatever. And you're going to do that. You do that anyway. And then you're going to educate them. You're really good at doing that. And look at the lab. CBC, M14. Anytime prior to starting, 
the quant, the HIV test, and the surface antigen. That's it. There's no serum silver level. There's no, like, none of that, right? It's just easy stuff. Pregnancy, obviously, if they're childbearing age. Laura, you look doubtful. Um, what do we do with the, um, the FIB4? It just says calculate it, but I don't, and then we also have the APRI. I'm just trying to figure out what do I do when I get these numbers? So the FIB4 is going to give you a number and it's going to have a, it's going to have a key. It's going to oh. say this number coincides to F0, no fibrosis. This number coincides to F1, F2, zero to mild fibrosis. And then you're going to put those, those pieces together. So like, even if you've got a F, even if you've got an F1, F2, but your ultrasound is completely normal and the other tests are completely normal, then you're going to say this patient doesn't have cirrhosis. And then the APRI we talked about, but it's not in this assessment. HCV doesn't do this. The only reason I use APRI is because ECHO does. Oh. We'll get to ECHO in just a minute. But um, so I calculated for them. It's on their form, but HCV guidelines doesn't use APRI. Other questions? Simple. All right, two drugs, you guys, this is it. Mavaret, Zepclusa. Easy, I mean, like you do a lot more complicated things than this in your practice. So three pills for eight weeks. This is Mavaret, this is Zepclusa, one pill a day for 12 weeks. While they're on it, you bring them in once a month, something like that. Hey, how's it going? Having any problems? Having any side effects? Hypoglycemia is one of them. If they're on warfarin, you probably shouldn't be taking care of them in your clinic for hep C if they're on warfarin. No lab monitoring is required. They do this by telehealth most of the time. We could do it by bringing them in once a month. Okay, two meds, that's it. Post-treatment, you want to do a viral RNA at 12 weeks. This is the most fun that you'll ever have. When you do, when you do a, a viral load and it's four and a half million when they start and 12 weeks later it is zero, it is like magic, right? I mean, it's just incredible. It's undetectable in like everybody. Everybody that I've treated has come back zero at 12 weeks. Um, no liver-related follow-up was recommended for non-serotic patients who achieve sustained vir virologic response. Obviously, if they stay in their risk deal, you want to talk through that a little bit. Alcohol always is a no-no for any liver disease. Okay, And if they don't achieve virologic cure, which they're probably going to, but if they don't, obviously that's a problem. Now we have a specialist and we need to figure out what happened, right? It's always compliance. Okay. Biggest part is what Mackenzie said. Last step, look at the cost. This is why these drugs are hard to come by. Um, this is Maverette. Maverette now requires no PA with your signature. There is no PA required on Medicare Sooner, Medicaid Sooner Care. You can write this prescription from Cerner for three tabs a day for eight weeks on Medicaid Sooner Care, and it will be filled by PA. Okay, so that's, the, that's and you don't require ECHO or Maverette now. Um, they like for you to do it because it's educational and it's kind of fun, but it's not required anymore. For Epclusa, 
On Medicaid, you often do require a PA. They want to know because this is the preferred for Medicaid. And then a lot of commercial insurance, they will require a PA. What, what they, a lot of them, what they require is they just want to see the, like the lab results and the FIB4 and, you know, they, and you feed that back to them and then they usually approve it. It used to be that they would feed back, oh, you need a hepatologist or you need an ID doctor or you need something else in the mix. Now, I'm not seeing that as often. It's mostly just they want documentation to justify the cost. But look, this is already better. When I did this lecture a couple years ago, this was 15 grand. Now it's generic. It's already come down quite a lot. Still not something that most people can afford. Questions about getting it paid for? Is it 13,000 for the entire course? Yeah. Okay. Which one do you usually go with? Navarette. You can choose either one. So what side effects should we prep our... Uh, the biggest side effect has to do with um, the hypoglycemia question I've seen. I mean, I've, I've had that in my clinic, but one of them was a diabetic. Yeah, his A1Z actually came down. <laughs> so good. Um, a lot of it's GI. You know, it's kind of the, I have not had a whole lot of side effects, really. Um, headache, GI, you know, fatigue, kind of just generalized kind of stuff is what most people report, if anything. Um, so Echo happens every Tuesday. I just went Tuesday. It was really fun. They, it's a Zoom deal. Most of the cases that they go, they go over about three or four cases each, each Tuesday. They're usually complicated cases. They're people that took four weeks and fell off. And now what do you do? Or they're a weird genotype or there's something strange. Um, and so they're not doing just routine, usually routine kind of uh, stuff here. But it's still, it's still really fun. What you do is contact them and submit a case. They have a kind of a web form that you fill out, and then you show up at the next Tuesday. You present the patient from the paper. You don't even have to like be nervous because you just read it out loud. And then there's an ID person. And like, I have to be honest, they still they try to make it complicated, mm -hmm. and it's not complicated. So like every time they do it, it's like well. We would tell this patient to quit smoking and we would tell them to quit drinking alcohol and we would tell them to take Maverette. <laughs> Next case. I mean, it's literally like that now. Uh, even the complicated one, like on uh, Tuesday, they did. She had taken four weeks of Maverette and then had fallen back into her lifestyle and kind of lost follow up. And at the end of the day, it was Maverette again, started over and just kind of see how she does. So, Okay. Yeah, no longer generally required. It's they're still awesome. This is the pharmacy that Echo uses, and I have had good results with them. This is the this is the Walgreens in OS, at OSU. They're very helpful. They know you know all the ins and outs of kind of getting these drugs approved. If if you have a problem, they're the ones to kind of talk to. And then again, anything that's off, you know out of the ordinary, treatment failure, partial treatment, people fall off the curve cirrhosis, pregnancy, those kinds of things we're talking about. Right? Okay. Questions? Yeah. Quick question on treatment failure. Do you know if like, if you try Mavera and it fails, can you just go to the next one? Or is that like you need specialists to figure out? I think you, I think I would recommend a specialist. 
at that stage. Especially since it's so many weeks of treatment. Yeah. And then you get really behind yeah. tests when you're not treatable. I wasn't sure if you had heard a case on echo that happened or not. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that they talk about echo again is this comorbidity thing. They're always talking about they have HIV and Hep C and, and how do we adjust? You know, it's more complicated stuff. Yes, ma'am. When you have to come back at the month mark in treatment, what all do you order? I don't order anything. I'm just making sure they're, they're on task. Okay. They're taking, I mean, if, if I'm worried about, I, I would just approach it the way I would any clinic patient, right? If I feel like they're having an AKI or, you know, they're at risk for whatever, then I might order that lab. Okay. But I don't do that routinely. And I'm mainly wanting them on, treatment for this $15,000 course of treatment. <laughs> I just don't want them to fall off the wagon. And I mean, this does take quite a bit of education. You really do need to let them know, Hey, this is, you know, this is a big deal. Um, I want you to commit to this three month, two month, three month process. Um, and many of them, you know, do great. The last one I treated was a diabetic and uh, he was on a statin, so we did do lab at four weeks just to make sure his liver functions, and they, ne- they never moved, and his A1C came down, <laughs> and, you know, and he, he's from uh, Myanmar, and so I just saw him about a month ago, and he brought me a gift, and I mean, it was this really special, and I refused the gift. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so again, demographic group, pretty much everybody, universal, diagnosis is pretty simple. Treatment is pretty simple. Last question. Um, so, sorry if I missed it, but essentially, you're you treat them and see them every month, and at the end, like as soon as they finish their medication, you reorder the same things you ordered in the beginning, like the Cerner drop. I'm just reordering the same thing again. Mm-hmm. I'm ordering just just a viral load. load. Thank you for clarifying. Already know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you don't really care about the antibody, or, and you've already done the genotype, so. Just the viral load. Just viral load at 12 weeks. Thanks for clarifying that. What if they finish treatment though and then you retest them later? Like you start over then because they could get, they could have had a different genotype. Yeah. I mean, if they stay in the lifestyle, you know, if they're still at risk for developing a reinfection, um, then you sort of start over. Hopefully they don't do that. Um, I came towards in the middle, and I know you sent an email. What is ECHO, just generally speaking? ECHO is uh, an outreach effort from OSU. Specialists who help folks that are outside of kind of Tulsa, Oklahoma City area um, to have specialty input in the care of their patients in the clinic. And so, and most of the folks that are doing that are like PAs and nurse practitioners out in Oklahoma. But um, it's been helpful for a lot of us that do primary care stuff here that need. So in the old days, you needed a specialist, like a letter that said, patient with Maverick or blah, 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 and they sign it and that would go with your PA. Like if I was gonna order Maverick, it was required, but now it's no longer required. So they served in that capacity for a long time to help. So at the end of that, what, what you get back is they would fax you a letter with the IDs and send that in with your people. But we don't, they don't do that anymore. Okay, good. Thank you you going to do it? Yes. Yep.